This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is Rebecca Bradder, Executive Director of the U.S. Dry Bean Council. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. America's crop insurance industry provides individualized protection on more than 290 million acres of farmland. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Rebecca Bradder next. America's crop insurance industry is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. The National Crop Insurance Services provide individualized protection on more than 290 million acres of farmland. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. The U.S. dry bean industry involves a number of different specialty crops that play a key role in consumer diets here in the U.S. and around the world. U.S. Dry Bean Council Executive Director Rebecca Bradder says her industry is export dependent with a fourth of domestic production destined for export markets. And the biggest customer is close to home. Mexico is a huge growth of the middle class and also a country that's consuming more meat but will always be a country that culturally is going to consume beans as part of their diet. So we're a critical piece of that equation. Mexico grows a lot, but is always going to be dependent on imports. And obviously, we're, we're their neighbor, we're their cultural partner, we're next door, we're their top supplier, and that's our top export market. So that one's critical. After Mexico, you know, a lot of our top markets tend to be based on proximity. We look at the Dominican Republic. If we group together sort of the CAFTA markets, those are all in their own important markets. But when you put them all together as a region, that becomes really critical to us. So so you can see us sort of having a very strong focus on on the Americas in terms of what we do. We have some very strong markets in, in Europe. We're really interested in what might happen for us in Turkey and something that we're exploring. It's been challenging, but we're hoping that we can find an opening is India. And I think a lot of us who are in the ag export business understand the challenges of working in that market. Brazil is an exciting new opportunity for us. That's a whole interesting case study and story of how you can sell a product even to a country that tends to be self-sufficient in beans. So we're kind of all over all over the map. We really have different strategies for everywhere we market. Southeast Asia is very interesting to us, but that tends to only be a, a snack food market because we have a lot of competition there. And, of course, the distance means that we can't always be competitive. Do you see a shift in consumer attitudes, either domestically or globally, driven by taste or by their economic scale that is providing either opportunity or concern for your industry? Well, what I see is more opportunity than concern. We've kind of been talking about this trend towards growth of the middle class and countries eating more meat, but... At the same time, there's another trend going on, which is as countries are moving into the middle class, a sort of health consciousness, a healthy eating consciousness that's strong. Now, we already have that here in the U.S. We've seen a very strong movement towards different diets, different types of eating that obviously really favor adding more dry beans into your diet, whether that's organic or vegan or vegetarian. Beans are are always healthy. There's so much nutritional background and so many different institutions that we partner with and work with that have just reams and reams of information of all the incredible nutritional properties of beans and, the, and frankly, the versatility. 
And we're also finding that we're seeing beans as an ingredient working their way into interesting applications. Like it's not uncommon now that you might see a, a black bean brownie and you can even buy these at the stores. We're seeing bean ingredients move into all kinds of foods. A company, Benitos, makes snack chips so you can get yourself some black bean chips or pinto chips. So we're seeing that trend, especially here in the U.S. Last year, we had the U.N. declared 2016 the International Year of Pulses, and that was really a wonderful opportunity for us to brand ourselves along with other pulses. You know, pulses is a term we don't use a lot here, but it includes dry beans, peas, lentils, and chickpeas. So it allowed us an opportunity as the dry bean industry to really get some extra firepower on getting our message out there about the amazing qualities of dry beans, nutritionally, economically, some of the sustainability aspects of growing, you know, as a, as a product that, that we call it a nitrogen fixer. Um, uh, uh, dry bean adds uh, nutrients back into the soil as part of the growth process. And what the, the International Year of Pulses did, um, or IOP as we called it, is it, it took that all that messaging and what we kind of already do here in the U.S. and really put, help put it out into the world. I see some very positive trends. Um, I see more more money and more investment um, going into into beans and into pulses. Um, you know, even though the year of the pulse is over, we got some momentum from that that's still going, and we're hoping that uh, February every year the United Nations will declare as the International Day of Pulses. So we're going to continue on with that trend, and, and that's not, not just a U.S.-based movement. That is a global movement because we know that for us, we're a trade organization. Almost 95, if not more, percent of our new opportunity is not in the U.S. It's going to be... Um, in our overseas markets. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about the, about these trends. In Washington, budget is top of the list, and there is mention that maybe even into Farm Bill before we turn the calendar to 18. So with that, uh, Rebecca, how important are the MAP and the FMD funds from the Department of Agriculture to the success of your members to the Dry Bean Council overall? Well, um I don't want to say they're everything, but they're pretty much <laughs> critical to our success. Um, you know, we've had such a fruitful partnership with the Department of Agriculture. We're part of this ag community. There are many of us out here who are um, dedicated to the goal of export development and trade. Um, and, and without that support through the MAP and FMD program and even others like Emerging Markets Program, global broad-based initiatives programs that all come out of the Foreign Ag Service, these have absolutely been critical to us um, gaining a foothold in markets overseas, opening up new markets overseas, keeping markets overseas, fighting for markets, finding new applications, um, being present at the table. Uh, just just a tremendous asset to, to our growers. Um, you know, we've had studies that... that, that that trace the impact of this trade right back to the farm gate prices. I mean, it's just a, it's a win-win formula. Um, so those are critical to us, and we will do everything in our power to make sure that those programs stay intact and become, hopefully, larger programs in the next farm bill. Some commodities have a checkoff, and they're able to leverage their own funds with USDA funds and be able to maintain and, and to grow markets. Are there other industry resources that you have that you can bring to the table? Absolutely. We are not a checkoff group, so we don't have that. We are a member-funded organization, so we have a little bit of a different structure. But that said, our members 
pay into this program and match those MAP and FMD funds with their own money because they believe in it. In addition to that, there's a number of other programs out there whose resources we can leverage. There are specialty crop grants that have a lot of interest in looking at beans and continuing to strengthen the image of beans here in the U.S., out across the world. Um, those are some other resources we bring to the table. And there's other research institutes that everybody seems to have an interest in, in, in beans and pulses right now. And we're, we're working on leveraging all of that to become part of our equation. We will always have an organization that is going to be paying into this program to show a match and to show that we believe in it and to make sure that it's understood that, that this program, we pay for it. You know, this isn't just uh, we get a grant and we don't, it's free money. We, we, we do, um, in a sense, provide a, 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 almost a subsidy for that money. So that's important that people understand that there is a private sector investment in that government grant, and we will always have that. We're on a checkoff, so that means we're working on maybe smaller margins, but I think for the, when you look at the size of our, our grant and our budget, our, our ratios are pretty strong, and we're going to continue to bring in all of these other amazing players, research institutes, dietary institutes, land-grant universities, all of these global institutes. These are all important players, and, and we'll continue to work in close partnership with all of those groups while maintaining our own you know, very strong image as being the driving council. I understand that your focus is for global and for markets, but also there is a farm bill. And in the 14 farm bill, there was a little more attention given to specialty crops. In the 18 farm bill, is there a wish list, whether for risk management or research or market promotion dollars? All of that. In the 14 farm bill, we had a a pulse crop initiative and some, some specialty crop funds. These really help continue to enhance the image of dry beans. We will want to see that again as part of our wish list going into the, I don't know if it's going to be an 18 or 19 farm bill at this point, but we'll want to see that. Um, we will want to see protections for our farmers. You know, crop insurance is critical. Um, this is a tough business, and we'll want to keep those risk management options in place. And we will be standing with the rest of the ag community asking for an increase in our MAP and FMD funding. Um, we haven't had an increase to those funds in a very long time. And we've seen, while the numbers have kind of stayed steady at about $235 million for the two programs together, we've seen more people come into the program. We've lost some funding to sequestration. And we're all, trade is so critical, we're we're all ambitious, we're all trying to do more. We'd like to see those funds increased, maybe even doubled in the next Farm Bill. So we're going to be pushing for that. That's absolutely critical. We all have huge wish list of things we want to do overseas and around the world while taking care of our growers here in the U.S. so that they have the inputs they need to keep growing a top-quality crop. One of the areas the White House was interested in cutting from the Department of Agriculture was that in food aid for the globe, yet we've seen the Department of Agriculture making some purchases of supplies of crops here from the U.S. to assist those hungry in the globe. Well, I'll tell you, we have to have food aid programs. I think we got a bit of a jolt when that administration FY18 budget first came out and we saw the wish list was to eliminate food aid programs. McGovern Dole's got Food for Education, Food for Progress, Food for Peace, which is the PL4D program, and that, that jolted us into action. Now, when those things happen, it's really scary for us because we can't imagine a, a, a living in a world without commodity-based food aid, but what it does is it activates all of us. And so you saw a pretty strong response from Dry Bean Council and from everybody in the ag community making very clear why we cannot cut our food aid programs 
the world is under an unprecedented global famine right now. Some people brand it, you know, everybody has to brand everything and they call it the four famines. But we have four countries in the world that are under uh, serious duress in terms of beyond even food security. I mean, they're in starvation. And then we have a number of other countries that are also facing some pretty dire circumstances. And, and that, you know, at this point, the world is a small place. We're kind of all tied together here. Um, so if, if we think that what happens in Yemen doesn't affect us back here in the States, that's crazy because it does. So if we can provide our food to folks on the ground, we need to do that. And I think the the formula we have of using our agricultural bounty to feed the world and those in need has been working successfully for over 60 years. And I believe there are ways we can tighten it up. We can sure, we can find some new efficiencies. No doubt. Everything can stand to be modernized and improved, but never eliminated. No challenge against rice or wheat, but I would think of the nutritional value of dry beans. You not only have the starch, but you also have a protein content as well. That's very true. You know, we, we, we don't really compete against those other bulk grains. They kind of have their, have their own market niches. And since we are kind of a smaller crop, um, it's very true. We do have the carbohydrate content and the protein content. I think a program where you see beans mixed with another bulk grain could be an excellent formula. And I think in a lot of food aid rations, you will see that in the basket of grain, beans, and a veg oil. That's kind of a standard trifecta that you might see in a food aid basket. Uh, we've been undergoing some changes as an organization and facing some new challenges as other new products are coming into the food aid basket. And, and we found ourselves, frankly, losing a little bit of ground on food aid as dry beans. And I think, you know, there's forces that make that happen. There's food aid programs themselves are changing. People want more micronutrient fortified foods these days. But we're kind of coming back into the food aid game with some new force. It, it, it just makes perfect sense. We're going to stay very committed to food aid and we'll be increasing our resources that we dedicate to food aid. And in the meantime, our voice is going to be very vocal defending these programs. We're pretty happy. Um, it seems right now in the budget process that's going on, um, the food aid budgets have made it through without any amendments. They're fully funded and there's never been a more important time to keep those programs fully funded. I'm really happy that as an agricultural community, we came together, all of the players, humanitarian, agricultural, maritime, and we, we made our voices heard on this issue. Uh, Rebecca, we've seen agriculture, especially uh, bulk commodities, on a downswing since 2013. Is the driving industry, uh, are you isolated from that fall? I think in agriculture, nobody's isolated because we kind of all work on the same continuum. Um, we always watch what corn does and what soy does, and we all more or less go on a similar continuum. But that said, being a specialty crop, I wouldn't say we're isolated, but we just work on a little bit of a different protocol. The drivers that move our products around the world, that move demand, the drivers that encourage planting and the decision whether or not to grow dry beans or to grow more beans or to increase your acreage of dry beans, they're, they're a little bit different from, from some of these larger commodities. And so, you know, what we're seeing right now is we had 2015, we had a a good year in terms of acreage 2016, we, we slipped backwards. We had some supply and price issues, and so like any industry, the, the growers respond. We're seeing acreage back on the upswing right now, but none of us are isolated from what happens around the world. And certainly, if we find ourselves in a situation where our global trade begins to be impacted, but if we see that our ability to trade globally starts being chipped away at, 
that's going to impact, you know, what happens in terms of our decisions for planting, just like it's going to impact any industry. The third round of the renegotiation of the North American Free Trade Agreement comes up later this month in Canada. What are your concerns and what are perhaps your hopes about a redo of the NAFTA? My hope is we get this thing done and that agriculture comes out intact. We do not need to mess around with the agricultural component of the NAFTA agreement. And I'm, and I'm just talking about agriculture because that's what I do and that's my specialty. So the, the party line here is do no harm. We need to do no harm. Can we modernize it? Absolutely. Are there things that can be shored up, improved, you know, little things here and there, some SPS issues? Absolutely. I'm, I'm really worried, as I know many of my colleagues are, about this Chapter 19 dispute resolution. We need to make sure that we have that and that that comes through. And I'm also concerned about this seasonality issue where the U.S. is talking about this ability to declare domestic origin based on a, a seasonal or regional basis. Um, and that also can impact dumping issues or safeguard issues and push us back into a dangerous situation with dispute resolution, which we, we don't want to be spending our time on that. We want to trade. Like many other industries, if we look over the lifetime of NAFTA and you plot it out with a line, you will see our line of trade with Mexico just shoot into the stratosphere. There's nothing that needs to be fixed about that. We're worried. You know, I, I hear even today I heard Mexico has been threatening to look at trade with China. And we already know there's a big group of Argentine bean sellers traveling over to Mexico in the next month. So we just can't sit back. We want this agreement to come out intact. It's, it is critical for dry beans, just like it's critical for so many of us. It's critical for agriculture. Um, I hope that this third round can push us through we can get some agreement, and we can also stop the threats of withdrawal. I, I, that is just something that we, we don't need to hear that injected into this discussion. Very early in the Trump administration, they withdrew from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Did that have an effect on the dry bean industry? And do you think we've seen the downside of that yet? We probably weren't hugely impacted, as some of the other groups may have been. And, and again, it was never put into force, so it's hard, it's hard to say. But I think in terms of the sort of goodwill and maybe geopolitical impact of withdrawing from what was considered by many to be a gold standard trade agreement, even though that term got maybe thrown about a lot, um, the impact of that is, has got to be huge. And, and for us, you know, TPP was more than just um, Southeast Asia, but those are brand new markets for us that we've been spending a lot of time on. Um, there, I mean, Vietnam is, is, is a is a pretty bright, shining star for many of us. Um, and there's so many interesting opportunities out there in, in Thailand, in the Philippines. Um, it, it just it, it doesn't help to have been at the doorstep of this um, multi-party, modern trade agreement and then to pull back and, and just be out of it. And, and then, the, of course, the big question here um, is who's going to step in? And is that going to be China? For us, that's a little scary. China's a major competitor when it comes to beans. China's a big deal, you know, major force in trade. I think the whole point of TPP was to put the United States in a really advantageous position in a critical part of the world. And now we've shifted that sort of geopolitical equation. I've been hearing that the agreement might go forward as an 11-party agreement. I've been hearing various things about bilaterals, but nothing concrete yet. So... We may not have felt a direct impact, but we don't know yet. 
you know, we are definitely competing with China in Southeast Asia. We're competing with Myanmar. I mean, they weren't a party to this, but we have competition out there. And we could have used a leg up. And certainly Japan, you know, we, we, we trade with Japan. It's an important market for us. I mean, we, we can't afford to not be on important trade terms with, with a lot of these nations. Rebecca Bradder, we want to thank you very much for taking time and spending with us on this edition of Open Mic. It is Open Mic, and you have an open forum. Well, thank you so much. It's really, really nice to have the chance to, to speak with you and to be part of this opportunity. I just think something really important for all of us to consider, you know, we've had so many different things coming at us, it's hard to keep up in terms of things that can impact and compromise our ability to trade. And we need to just keep our voice heard. I, I think we've shown that when we stick together as an agricultural community and we make it clear what our priorities are and what's important to us, and we show in very concrete terms the impact of some of these trade proposals and the negative effect that it can have on the agricultural economy and the economy of the U.S., our message comes through. So we need to stick together, keep putting those messages out there, and stay very vocal on trade. Our thanks to Rebecca Bratter, Executive Director of the U.S. Dry Bean Council, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. America's crop insurance industry is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Gowley.